This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, students from CPBN's Journalism and Media Academy will tell us how a national initiative called Dear POTUS is giving young people a voice in the political discussion. But first, Richard Blumenthal has a long track record in Connecticut. From federal prosecutor to state legislator in both the House and Senate in the Connecticut General Assembly. One of his longest offices that he's held is a 10-year term as state attorney general, serving under three different Connecticut governors. On November 8th, he's hoping to be re-elected to the U.S. Senate after winning his first term in 2012. We've invited Senator Blumenthal on the show to answer your questions. The number, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Again, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Senator Richard Blumenthal back to Where We Live. Wonderful to be with you again. Tell us, why are you running for a second term? I love my job. It gives me the opportunity to help a lot of people, listen to them. I love traveling the state and being with people and then going to work for them in Washington. And very seriously, too often today, powerful special interests get their way. My job has always been, when I was attorney general for 20 years, and then as United States senator, to stand up to those special interests and fight for the people of Connecticut, for consumers who are ripped off, for women who deserve equal pay for equal work, for veterans who need better health care, and for everybody in the state of Connecticut who simply wants a fair shake. And I want to continue the work that I'm doing to create more jobs and drive economic growth, as well as to aid our veterans with services they deserve. They've earned them. I'm the ranking member on the Veterans Affairs Committee. I'm very proud of that work. And to make sure that we stand up to those big and powerful special interests, particularly on taxes and on creating jobs and economic growth. So there is a lot of work still to be done. And I'm hopeful that the people of Connecticut will rehire me for another term. You certainly have name recognition because of of your history as a public servant here in Connecticut. It's an interesting time to be in politics. A lot of Americans frustrated with the politicians in Congress where you have served for the last six years. Um, If you look at this presidential election, something we've never seen before. um, I mean, what do you tell Americans who become so frustrated with the country that they live in? They just don't feel like their needs are being addressed in Washington. There is a famous saying that the only thing that's needed for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And what I say to people is we can work together to improve this process. Nobody's more frustrated than I am with the dysfunction and the partisan paralysis in Washington. That's why I spend every day literally trying to reach across the aisle and create bipartisan coalitions, and I've done it on issues like infrastructure, where we passed a transportation reauthorization bill that will actually bring $3 billion to Connecticut to improve our highways and roads, and including $860 million for the first time for rail and mass transit. That's a bipartisan bill that will create jobs and improve economic progress, and it was the result of bipartisan work. And I've done the same thing on the Veterans Affairs Committee where we passed the Choice Bill 2014, giving veterans access to private health care if they live more than 40 miles or they have to wait more than 30 days for health care and impose greater standards of accountability within the VA. We now have a Veterans First Bill. It's on the floor of the Senate, having been approved unanimously by the Veterans Affairs Committee. Again, 
bipartisan co- cooperation between myself as ranking member and the chairman of the committee, Johnny Isaacson. Mm-hmm. These kinds of bipartisan efforts are what we need to do more often. That's the way to break the gridlock and enlist more Americans by creating hope that we can do more together. We need to bring this country together more than we have before. You mentioned the choice bill uh, to help veterans um, access care if they live within 40 miles from a, a VA hospital or clinic. Weren't there some big problems with that when it was rolled out? There have been continuing problems with it, which is why we now have the Veterans First Bill to address some of those problems. And if a veteran lives more than 40 miles from a VA healthcare facility or has to wait more than 30 days, they now have access to private providers. They can go outside the VA system, but those private providers have to be reimbursed. We have to streamline the reimbursement process. That's one of the goals of the Veterans First Bill. In addition, a lot of caregivers in homes provide medical assistance and care for veterans, loved ones, family members. They have virtually no support compared to what they need. And that's why part of the Veterans First Bill expands the caregiver program. It also provides for stronger accountability. Poor performers should not receive bonuses. Wrongdoers ought to be removed, and it ought to be done in accordance with due process. That kind of problem is also further addressed. And there is certainly a lot to be done with the VA. Uh, Just yesterday, I was at the VA facility in West Haven saying that there ought to be Wi-Fi access, Internet connection in all patient rooms. There isn't in the VA facility, one of the best in the country, in West Haven. And so that's another example of the kinds of service that ought to be improved. Capital improvements ought to be done at the West Haven VA facility as well as others around the country. So I think that there is still a lot of work to be done, and I look forward to doing it. Um, You bring up a lot of important issues. Um, Do people know that you're running for re-election? This is a very different campaign than when you ran against Linda McMahon, where there were um, actual debates between you and your opponent. Um, You know, Dan Carter was on our show just last month, and, and, you know, he has uh, one thing that he often repeats about you, and that is that you have name recognition and you fight for a lot of consumer issues, uh, but he questions, um, you know, the kind of work that you're doing. Let's hear that clip. I've always felt that Blumenthal, while he may work hard, he's very focused on issues that keep him in the press. You know, we, we joke about it that the most dangerous place is dick in a microphone or, you know, he'll show up for your envelope opening. But, you know, meanwhile, there are some big things that we have to handle. What do you say to that? You know, uh, I take as a badge of honor that I show up places. Uh, there is a joke. I'm sure some meant it as a means of ridicule that I'll show up for a garage door opening. And the fact is, I'm all around the state because that's my way of listening to people. I am physically there talking, but more important, listening. And I do stand up and fight for consumers against powerful special interests. I stood up to GM and insisted on a compensation fund, which it did as a result of its faulty ignition switch that killed people. I've stood up to my land on the EpiPen issue, overcharging, profiteering, price gouging, which in my view is a violation of its moral duty and very possibly of its legal responsibility, which is why I've asked for a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice. And I am proud of the work that I've done in protecting consumers. What seems like a minor issue 
to some people is a big deal to the person who is losing money or losing lives more tragically. And I'm going to continue that work, standing up to powerful special interests. The people of Connecticut can count on me to fight for them. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me today is U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's running for re-election. If you have a question for the senator, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now, Senator. Uh, Ben's calling from Wallingford. Ben, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I just wanted to ask the senator, does he plan to support repealing all fossil fuel subsidies to mitigate climate change and stopping the frack gas pipelines that are trying to be built here in Connecticut. All right, Ben, thank you for your Thanks, Ben. I strongly support action on climate change, and I have fought the climate change deniers. When I was attorney general, I brought actions to make sure that the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act were enforced. I intend to continue that kind of effort, eliminating the subsidies for the big oil companies, those kinds of tax breaks and, in effect, giveaways, I think, are reprehensible. We need tax reform that benefits middle class taxpayers and small businesses, not the billionaires or the big oil companies. And I'm going to continue to fight for tax cuts like the child care tax credit for middle class families, for tax reductions that benefit them, and for reforms in our tax system that will eliminate, for example, the kind of credit that Donald Trump took when he carried forward his loss of $912 million. That carry-forward provision should be eliminated. So should the carried interest provision that accords capital gains treatment to what's really ordinary income for some hedge fund and equity managers. We need to eliminate the write-offs for multi-million dollar bonuses for corporate executives in the oil industry and elsewhere. Those kinds of tax breaks and giveaways to billionaires or big oil companies ought to be eliminated, and we should take action under our state and local laws to make sure that pollution is eliminated, particularly in Long Island Sound, a treasure where we're making progress, but the latest report card from Save the Sound indicates there's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, and you've said that you're committed to helping and addressing the issues facing Connecticut voters. But again, gridlock in Congress. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Merrick Garland. What has it been, 200 days since he was first nominated? I mean, what's happening there in terms of, you know, the confirmation hearing? You sit on the Judiciary Committee. Um, People want to know about this vacancy, and with the upcoming election, are we going to see this vacancy continue past the 100 days of the new president? That's a profoundly important question. Lucy, because the Senate's failure to do its job is a violation of constitutional duty. I don't want to be unduly partisan here, but the fact of the matter is I've helped to lead the effort to get a hearing and a vote for the president's nominee. The refusal to do so is a profound disrespect for the office of the presidency as well as this president, but also a profound disservice to the people of the United States. What are the real-life consequences of a 4-4 gridlock? It means the law remains uncertain, and that's what we have now on the Supreme Court, 4-4 deadlock votes so that the gridlock in the legislative branch is infecting 
the judiciary. The Senate has an obligation to advise and consent. It's not an obligation when it's politically convenient to do so or when it thinks it might want to do so. It's a constitutional obligation to advise and consent on nominations that the president makes. And the Senate is failing to do its job because the Republican chairman of the Judiciary Committee, where I do sit, is refusing to have a hearing. The Republican majority leader is saying there will be no vote during this session. That means that an unprecedented amount of time will be taken before a new nominee is voted on, let alone confirmed. Almost two years, two terms, which is unprecedented. So this kind of abrogation of constitutional duty has real-life consequences for banks that don't know whether borrowers have to repay money for people who have voting rights, and those cases may be undecided for people who have come into this country and are subject to immigration laws when there are questions undecided. There are real-life consequences here, and that's why I've helped to lead this effort day in and day out as a member of the Judiciary Committee to persuade our Republican friends that there should be a hearing and a vote. I might just say about Merrick Garland, this man is really an extraordinarily well-qualified and distinguished judge. He's been a judge for many years. I first came to know him when both of us were in the Department of Justice. I was the United States Attorney, Chief Federal Prosecutor in Connecticut at the time. I have great respect for him, but I'm not going to tell my Republican colleagues that they should necessarily vote for him. They should have a hearing, and they should speak with him and then make up their own minds. I think they'll be persuaded to vote for him, but the point is to move the process forward. Let's take some calls. Helen's calling from West Hartford. Helen, you're on Where We Live. Um, thank you. Um, I just want to thank Senator Blumenthal for all the work he's done over the decades for the people of Connecticut. Um, he seems to be, to me, he's the only politician who works for the people and fights hard. And just thank you, Senator. Well, you're very, very nice, Helen. I really appreciate that. I, I have tough fights, and as Lucy has pointed out, Washington is not a friendly environment these days for getting things done. But I also try to remember that compromise is important, that agreement requires compromise. It's not a dirty word. It's not a four-letter word. And we need to be able to work with each other more than we have. And uh, I really want to thank you, Helen, for those very, very kind words, but say that I'm really determined to work even harder, redouble my efforts to get things done in Washington. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal is here in studio today as we talk about why he's running for re-election as Connecticut's senior U.S. Senator. Do you have a question for him before you cast your vote on November 8th? If you're holding, uh, please stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We'll get to your calls. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal is here in studio with us. He's hoping to be reelected this fall. His challenger, Republican State Representative Dan Carter. Do you have a question for Senator Blumenthal? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We'll go to Roger now. Roger's calling from New London. Roger, you're on the show. Yes, good morning, uh, WNPR, and good morning, Senator Blumenthal. Good morning, uh, Roger. Your leadership on the high-speed rail issue has been so prominent and so welcome here in the southeast coast. I'm just wondering if you have uh, a sense of when the Federal Rail Administration will announce uh, the routing decision for Connecticut and what you think, uh, whether you think the bypass will be dropped from that route. Roger, thank you so much for that question, which is so very important, and I'm glad that you're giving me an opportunity to let the rest of the state know what you in southeastern Connecticut know all too well, which is that the Federal Railroad Administration is considering a route for the high-speed rail service along the coast that I think is profoundly destructive to cultural, economic, environmental values there. And to answer your question very directly, for me, this route is a non-starter. I've said jokingly that they will have to untie me from the tracks if they build it where they are thinking of doing through the heart of Lyme and other coastal communities that have such a rich and extraordinarily valuable environmental and cultural value. And I believe that it's a non-starter. It's half-baked and harebrained. And what really outrages me most is that a lot of money has been spent on studies. In fact, millions of dollars have been spent on studies that should go nowhere. I will fight this route. And it really is a, an example of the kind of misjudgments that can delay much-needed improvements in our rail service. I've been a strong advocate of improving and investing in our rail service. In fact, I mentioned earlier in the program that for the first time, the Surface Transportation Reauthorization Act will contain a specific authorization for rail. In fact, $2.6 billion for Amtrak in the Northeast out of $8 billion total nationwide. Now, that means we are getting back some of the profits that Amtrak is making. Amtrak in the Northeast is the only part of Amtrak that is profitable, and yet that money has been going into the system as a whole. Now we're going to start getting some of it back, but we need to use it wisely. There have to be smart decisions that are sensitive to cultural and environmental interests, and that is what is at stake in the rerouting, potential rerouting, of this service, the tracks and so forth. The tracks need investment. So do the cars. We need high-speed speed rail service. We need to invest in rail and mass transit, but it has to be wise investment. And across the state of Connecticut, we're going to be doing better. In fact, there's going to be a Hartford line for the rest of the state. They should be aware that, at my insistence, uh, there has been, by Amtrak, a commitment to complete that line by 2016. I specifically asked in a hearing on the Commerce Committee where I sit, whether they would commit. Joe Boardman said yes. And again, it has to be smart decision-making, wise planning, and intelligent management, not what we've seen in the FRA 
saying that there's going to be a line that goes through the heart of Lyme and other communities that are so valuable. So I'm going to continue to oppose it. I know it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but as you know from our hearings in Lyme, and I've listened to you and other members of those communities, I feel very passionate about this issue. We're getting a lot of calls. Uh, Jessica's calling from Waterbury. Jessica, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Um, Senator, I just wanted to ask. I am a female vet, and I go to the campus at West Haven quite frequently. Um, 100% service-connected, but yet um, the services for females seem to kind of take the back burner to the services for male veterans. They, um, they're not equal and they haven't been equal for years. And it doesn't seem to matter what our needs are. We serve just as the males did. So why is it that there's such a, such a difference? Jessica, that is probably one of the best questions of this whole show. <laughs> and thank you for calling. This issue has been a real passion of mine in my contention with the VA that it needs to do better for our female vets. As you well know, Jessica, Female veterans are growing in number and as a proportion of the veterans population as a whole, as we very rightly and valuably welcome more women into the ranks of our military, and they are performing vital services. As a member of the Armed Services Committee, I'll tell you parenthetically, I see women serving, and it is so inspiring, their contributions to our national interest at every rank in every MOS, in every occupational specialty, and now increasingly in actual combat situations. And we need to honor that service and give them the kinds of assistance they have earned. They need and deserve better health care. And so you'll be pleased to learn, I hope, that the VA clinic for women in the West Haven facility has been expanded and renovated. It's no longer sort of in the basement. It's now on a separate floor. I went to the ribbon cutting. Again, very inspiring to see the female docs and patients and veterans come to that facility in increasing numbers. But that's only a down payment. You are so right, Jessica, that there has to be more care, and it has to be female-specific where it is appropriate, and that kind of service has to be a priority for the VA. And I've spoken to the secretary of the VA, Bob McDonald, about it, as well as uh, Mr. Sh- Dr. Shulkin, who's the head of the healthcare services. And they are basically in agreement, but they need the resources. And that's why allocations of funding and investment is so very important. But you're actually absolutely right, Jessica. And if you would get in touch with me, I would love to talk to you more about it. Judy's Judy's calling from Middletown. Judy, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Hi, Judy. How are you? Thank you so much for um, for all your help with the H-1B visa um, problems that we're having here in Connecticut. I know companies are continuing to hire H-1B visas. And for people who don't know what that is, it's a specialized um, visa where you can bring in foreign people to... Um, do jobs that are very specialized. However, companies have found a loophole in that law, and now we're replacing American jobs with foreign workers. Um, This not only is, in my opinion, ethically and morally wrong, 
but also it contributes to um, having citizens pay more for unemployment. Um, some of these people need to go on special programs. Um, and I know that um, there's, I know you had a bill that would increase the H-1Bs, H-1Bs, but you were concerned that you weren't going to pursue that until the H-1B, um, the current H-1B bill was passed. And I also want to thank uh, Richard Kehoe, your um, assistant in Hartford, for all his help with this issue as well. Well, thank you so much. I'll pass along your compliment to Rich Keogh. He's a hardworking member of my office, and, you know, uh, very often we get credit for what our staff does. So if Rich is not listening, he'll certainly hear about your comment. Uh, dealing with the substantive issue, you're absolutely right. The H-1B program has given rise to unfortunate abuses. It's been somewhat overused, and people have come into it and then, in effect, been trapped in the program because they are denied opportunities to move to other jobs if they come in and they have this visa. But more importantly, they've replaced American workers in ways that are abusive. And if we're going to expand this program, it has to first be reformed. And that's what I've been fighting to do. So I have a bill that will accomplish that objective. But Speaking more broadly, this nation needs immigration reform. And the bill that I'm advancing on H-1B visas is part of a broader reform that will enable 11 million people who are now in the shadows to have a path to earned citizenship, earned citizenship. It will also make our borders more secure. It will provide for more resources to a court system that too often delays decision and fails to provide due process. This kind of broad, comprehensive approach was embodied in a bill that, believe it or not, was passed overwhelmingly by the United States Senate with bipartisan support. Marco Rubio and uh, Lindsey Graham supported it. I helped to write key parts of it. It came out of the Judiciary Committee. It was passed by the Senate overwhelmingly and then never reached a vote in the House. Um, You mentioned your bill. Um, How much work do you think you'd be able to get done under a Trump presidency? I hesitate even to think about a Trump presidency, but uh, I would work under any president. I will work under Hillary Clinton, and I will work under Donald Trump to move the national interest forward on issues like our national defense. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. We have a lot of tough decisions. I'm glad that we are now building two submarines a year. I'm proud of the fact that I fought for that effort and persuaded the administration to contract for 10 submarines at the price of nine and to provide jobs in Connecticut as well as build the best submarines in the world, the strongest, stealthiest submarines made anywhere, and one of the chief reasons why we are as secure as we are, because those fast attack submarines, the Virginia class, are essential to our national defense. So is replacing the Ohio class. That kind of work should be bipartisan, no matter who the president is. And I have not hesitated to 
to differ and disagree with President Obama, where I did well, have different let's, opinions. Let's talk about that. You were part of the support in Congress for the, the 9-11 uh, Saudi bill to allow families of 9-11 victims uh, to go after Saudi Arabia for supporting terrorists. Tell, tell us about why you voted that way. I not only voted that way, I helped to lead the effort to pass the JASTA bill, which in fact gives 9-11 families their day in court. As you know, Lucy, uh, many of these 9-11 families live in Connecticut. They live particularly in the part of Connecticut where I do, in southeastern Connecticut, because many of them commuted to New York. Mm -hmm. I've come to know them. I've come to admire tremendously their courage and strength. And as hard as I worked for this bill, they were really the chief advocates and the most effective advocates for it. And basically what it does is to say that a terrorist act that is supported or sponsored, financed, and aided by a foreign state ought to be held accountable to that foreign state, even if that assistance occurs outside our borders. To take 9-11, the terrorist attack was at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and Pennsylvania. But the allegation is that Saudi operatives directly or indirectly, financed the terrorists who conducted those terrorist activities. And my view is that the Saudi government and its agents and its institutions should be held accountable. Everybody ought to have their day in court. There's no verdict, no judgment coming out of this bill, but simply the right of American citizens to hold accountable a foreign state that sponsors terrorism or supports or finances it. And the president opposed it. He vetoed it. Mm -hmm. I helped to lead the effort to override his veto. I disagreed with him very respectfully. He contended that there would be consequences for our men and women potentially abroad or our servicemen and women or for the United States government, which might be sued abroad. Mm -hmm. I know that this discussion sounds like a lot of lawyerly technical talk, but the fears, I think, were somewhat overblown. We can always correct whatever omissions need to be addressed, but my feeling is that the rights of American citizens to hold accountable wrongdoers ought to be sacrosanct. People should have their day in court. We're getting a tweet from Billy uh, who writes, we need to enforce the immigration laws we have first and they can be reformed. Um, stop giving illegals a pass. So he wanted to, to comment on your previous comment. I want to take another quick call. Raul is calling. Let me just say, okay. Lucy, I am against giving illegals a pass. This bill is not amnesty. As my Republican colleagues have emphasized, amnesty is not the goal or the effect of this bill. And I agree that the immigration laws should be enforced. Raul is calling from Haddam. Raul, we're short on time. What's your question? Uh, Senator, you uh, discussed earlier your efforts with one drug, uh, but that problem is pervasive with many other drugs. I'm a senior citizen. I see that happening with other drugs as well. I also see other abuses, such as companies that uh, prevent competition by uh, snuffing out generics that might compete with their products. So I have two questions. One is whether you're working with uh, with Congressman with Representative DeLauro on her recent proposal. And do you have a broader strategy 
to really deal with the problem as a whole? Uh, excellent question, and since we're short on time, I'm going to be try try to be as simple and straightforward as I can. Yes, I am working with Congresswoman DeLauro. She has just recently made a proposal for a review board that will address the very urgent problem of overcharging, price gouging, profiteering with drugs like EpiPens, where I've been a leader, but also for drugs as routinely used as as insulin and Narcan and other workhorse medicines that are sometimes in short supply and where the prices are escalated, particularly if they are brand names, but also generics. And yes, I will be making specific proposals that will use our existing laws, which prevent certain kinds of deceptive and misleading conduct, as well as antitrust violations. But I think, to take your question very directly, that the settlement between the Justice Department and my land was a very, very bad mistake. Not only is the amount of money inadequate, but there's inadequate investigation to hold culpable individuals. And one of the things that has to be done is better enforcement of our existing laws, both criminal and civil. And where there are wrongdoers, and I know they're powerful, and they hold a lot of sway in Washington, and they spend a lot of money on lobbyists, but I'm going to continue fighting to hold them accountable because the pharmaceutical drug industry, and not everyone, but some of its bad actors, need to be held accountable. We did get an earlier call. I just wanted to throw this out to you. Um, Someone called in wanting to know if you would support term limits. Uh, We have term limits. They're called elections. And uh, I have uh, supported a vigorous and effective electoral process. I have questions about term limits because of when I, because of the fact that I see people who have served for a long time but continue to do so with distinction on both sides of the aisle. So before supporting term limits, I want to be persuaded that there's really a problem that will be solved by term limits. And just under a minute, um, obviously a lot of people know your name. What's one thing they don't know about you, Senator? One thing they may not know about me is that two of my sons have served in the military, one of them in the Marine Corps Reserve, uh, 125, the Charlie Company unit in Plainville, served in Afghanistan, uh, and he's back safely now. Another is also serving in the military in the United States Navy, and I wear a blue star on my lapel. And a lot of people don't know what that blue star signifies because they see it so rarely. And the reason is that so few people now have members of their families serving and deployed. And that's a fact that is unknown to a lot of people, that less than 1% of our population is involved directly in the 15 years of war that we have fought. And we're continuing to fight ISIS, and extremist violence. Senator Blumenthal, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you for coming in to answer some of our listeners who are able to call in and ask you a question. Again, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal is running for re-election this November 8th against Republican Dan Carter, who's a state representative in the Connecticut General Assembly. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from high schoolers about what they said in video letters to the next president. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're three weeks out until the presidential election. Nationwide, young people have been participating in an initiative to send a letter to the next president, telling the new commander-in-chief about things that concern them, what they're looking forward to, and what the president should know about the perspective of our nation's students. CPBN's Media Lab created a series of open video letters from high school seniors at the Journalism and Media Academy here in Hartford. Three of those students are here with me today to tell us about the project called Dear POTUS. I want to welcome to the studio Jean Spears, Madison Frame, and Ashley Floyd, all seniors at the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford. Welcome to the show. Thank Hello. you. I'll start with Madison. What did you want to tell the next president? Um, I wanted to mention about the school system because uh, I think it's a big problem that's not being talked about in the debates. And uh, I guess the way we started talking about it was – our our advisor, well, our teacher told us about it, and we kind of just sat in a circle, talked about ideas, different ideas that we can come up with to do our videos about, or different ways we can do it. She showed a clip of somebody doing a spoken word poem, and that was pretty cool, and I do spoken word, so that's what I thought I would do with it. There's a lot of important issues that, unfortunately, we haven't heard about in this campaign. What specifically did you want to focus on when you mentioned the school system? Um I know from my video, I focused on the curriculum and how they go about teaching history and black history in the school system, especially in urban school systems where the majority of students are of African-American descent. The black history is taught for a week rather than the whole month. And they teach about the same people, you know, MLK and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. And I think that they need to switch it up because there's a lot of people in Harford that were huge role models when it came to civil rights. And they don't talk about that. We play in gyms by those people, and we don't know who they are. Jean Spears, how did you prepare? What did you want to tell the next president? Um, just like Madison, they do not talk about education in um, school systems, and I really wanted to focus on the curriculum, especially in urban school systems. And I stated um, the Black Lives Matter movement in there. And the reason why I stated that is because I want to explain my life also matters in the public school system. And urban schools do not get the same education as suburban schools. And although there is a lot of money put into urban schools, but yet money isn't always the solution. There are You can get use that money to have better teachers and better um, programs for students. I think we have a clip from your video letter, Jean, to yeah. the president. Let's hear it. Ever heard of the phrase Black Lives Matter? Or how about All Lives Matter? What do either of these phrases mean to you? Saying All Lives Matter marginalized the concern of African Americans by grouping the Black Lives Matter movement into a larger All Lives Matter movement. Implies that all Americans have the same experience, but in reality, African Americans are much more troubled. So when you saw the result of this video letter, were you happy with the message? Yes, because I didn't think um, it would be such a big, I want to say, uproar with it. I didn't think people really actually listened to what I had to say, and it actually worked. So what was happy. The, what was the response? A lot of people are asking me, like, what do you mean by the Black Lives Matter movement? How did you um, compare the Black Lives Matter movement into the school system? And once again, I explained that my life should also matter in the school system, which I feel like it really doesn't. I'll turn back to Madison. Let's hear a clip from your video letter to the POTUS. He said, I can't breathe. White man noose wrapped his neck. White man noose heart beating out chest. White man gunshot, two to the head, 17 to the body, one to the leg, firing off round, it's open season. Till death do us part, till bullet punctures heart, till word punctures mind, till someone presses rewind, we learn our history. So don't repeat it. Got jeans filled with dreams of dance hall queens, don't need to step further, they don't teach us that. My nourishment of the mind teaches teachers to be blind, to call ourselves black, teach the history of end, but never the word need just. 
White man noosed and caught our tongue. Speak up too much, we bound to get stung. Might be the bullet that hits us, but what can be done? Can't you teach us to be more than Jay-Z and LeBron? Teach us how to untie this noose. Teach us change, change the curriculum so we can have dreams filled with dignity and a mindful of the belief that we could be something much greater than the simple American dream. So you told us earlier that you're a spoken word artist. Yes. And so yes. we were able to hear some of that in your, on your video letter. Um, also, the, the importance of history yes. in yeah, your curriculum. She's pretty sure. amazing. And that's Ashley Floyd, one of your classmates. Um, tell us about your letter. Well, my letter was about petty crimes. I know not a lot of people talk about it. I feel, I feel like we have a problem with like really looking through each case of prison sentencing. Like... I know plenty of children who has incarcerated parents because of um, anything that has to do with, like, drugs or anything. And it's like there's people out in the world who are getting incarcerated for, like, over five years for weed. And there's people out there in the world, for example, like the Brock Turner case, who's getting six months in jail for raping an unconscious woman. I think that's pretty, pretty crazy. And I feel like... The next president really needs to like sit down and really think about that because there's not even myself, but there's plenty of other children who's really affected by having incarcerated parents. And I think we really need to sit down and really focus on each and every case before putting somebody in jail for life or five years. And it's like it's crazy because now we're legalizing marijuana. So why people are still in jail if you're legalizing marijuana for weed? You're talking about the importance of reforming the criminal justice system, something we've heard from the current president, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're here in Connecticut. We've heard from Governor Malloy um, about the Second Chance Society and and decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana. Let's hear a little bit of your your video letter, Ashley. The issue that I am having is that people in the United States are getting sentenced for petty crimes. According to the DEA, if you have less than 50 kilograms of marijuana, you will go to jail for up to no more than five years. My video is actually getting shared around Connecticut as well. It's getting played in East Hartford High. I know most of our videos was getting played in East Hartford High. And actually, I'm proud because we're motivating other schools to actually do these videos as well. Yeah, they're using us as examples in other schools. Like when we were on um, WFSB, they showed it in a lot of schools. Like, this is what you guys are going to do. That's interesting. So you recorded the video. You wrote the the messages. You Mm -hmm. recorded them here at the JMA um, within CPBN. Mm -hmm. And then when you were on a a local TV station, other schools are now seeing the project? Yes. And it was cool how it caught WFSB's attention. They told us actually like 15 minutes before we got here, oh, WFSB is coming to interview us. We were like, yeah, really? shocker. <laughs> yeah, so it was nice. <laughs> you don't have to worry about your, your makeup or hair for radio, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> so this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. In studio with me are three seniors at the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford, Jean Spears, Madison Frame, and Ashley Floyd. They participated in a project called Dear POTUS, where they recorded video letters that they'll be sending to our next president. And I, I wanted to ask you something we talked about earlier, and I'll turn back to to Madison Frame, uh, about the 2016 election. There are so many issues that touch our lives that we're not hearing from the candidates. You mentioned uh, the school system. Um, But as a a young African-American woman, what are some other things you want to be hearing from uh, the candidates? I I actually, like, was thinking about it this morning because it's it's been on my mind because it's on the news, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. And I, I know they're talking about how they're going to deal with Syria and ISIS and make sure that America's safe from other terrorist organizations. 
But I want to hear how they're going to keep America safe from Americans trying to hurt each other because that's what's happening. There are cops killing black men and and black women, and there's black on black crime. There's there's crime. There's crime everywhere in America, and it, it's it's overwhelming to under to think that we have a president. We're, we're going to have a president who's thinking that they're the president of the whole world, but you're the president of the United States of America. Help America. Like, like help us help each other because it's not happening. Yeah. What do you think about that, Jean? Oh, that's a very sensitive subject. Um, <laughs> again, education. I do have younger um, nieces and nephews that are soon going to be in um, middle school and high school, whatever, and going to college soon. But it's just like I want them to focus on the youth. The right. youth is very important because mm-hmm. that's like, that's, it's just, the youth is very important. That's all I have to say. And they're not focusing on that. You know, there's a lot of attention on the economy, too, here in in the United States. And we hear often from adults that they don't have confidence in the future. But as a young person, do you have confidence as you get ready to graduate and move on to college? What are you confident about? I'm confident in a lot of things. It took me a while to actually gain confidence, to actually gain confidence from my mother when she always told me, like, you have to be strong. It's going to be a lot of things that's going to come your way. You're not going to like. You have to deal with things, but you just have to be strong. It's It's just a lot to it. It's a lot. Um, I'll turn uh, to Ashley Floyd. No matter who is elected um, in November and, and you know, they're sworn into office uh, in, in January, um, what do you think your future will, will look like under this new president? <sighs> I don't know. I'm just trying to stay positive. Hopefully, you know, things start taking a better course. But, you know, I'm just waiting for the future to come. I'll throw something else out there to you. Um, We were talking about the economy on the minds of many Americans. Student loan debt has now surpassed uh, the debt for credit cards. Is that something that worries you? I mean, I assume all of you are thinking about college. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I really hope I I can get a scholarship because I know plenty of people who have, (laughs) who still own a lot of debt, like over 40 thousand and yeah. I really mm-hmm. hope I don't end up like that so <laughs> I get as many scholarships yeah, as you can as much and if you can't get the, as many scholarships as you can the only other route is to apply for student loans right yeah yeah that's why my mother my mother always told me do your best in school so yeah. that way you will not be in debt yeah I just I mean and I was watching the recent debate that happened and I don't remember the gentleman's name but an African-American man stood up and asked a question about what they're going to do for, like, civil American society. And they automatically responded with, like, uh, talking about urban cities right. and African-American youth. I'm just – and me, I'm thinking just because it's an African-American man asking a question doesn't mean that's what you have to respond with. Exactly. Right. And that, that bothered me from both candidates because it's like he, – he wasn't just asking about African-Americans. He was asking about Americans in general. Like, what are you going to do for Americans? Why do you think it's important for uh, our listeners, other adults, to hear your message? I think that being a youngster, uh, <laughs> we have a lot to say. Like we're growing up being affected by this directly. And I guess a lot of people don't think that's what it is, but that's exactly what it is. And we're we're given this idea that we don't speak until we turn 18. That's when we have right. the voice, and that's when we can do what we want. And that's not the case. We we have a lot to say, and it needs to be publicized. It's not being publicized we as we want to, it yeah. to. If we if we go to the Board of Ed about the Hartford Public School System, 
we come back to school and in our principals talk to us about it as if we did something wrong, as if we weren't supposed to say anything. And that's totally opposite of student voice. But they want us to have a voice. You mentioned other schools in Connecticut are able to see um, your um, how you participated in this project through the video letters to Dear POTUS. Um, but what have you learned um, from listening and reading your, your classmates' letters, Ashley? Um, I think is I think it was pretty amazing. You know, I finally heard their opinion, like how they feel about each topic, and you know, by listening to Jean's topic, like I really like felt her pain and felt how she really felt about that topic. And Madison, her poetry was just amazing. Like, I finally, like, really understood how she felt about the education and the funding and all that. So I thought it was pretty amazing, and I feel like I hope other students really, like, take the chance to really put their all into this project because I really want our voices to be heard and really hope we can get a change out of this. When I actually sat down and listened to it, I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, it's a lot of things in this country that can be changed. Sorry, I'm just glad to like be around such a conscious group of teens. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are worried about our future and we want a better future for us and, and our siblings and kids after us. I've been speaking with Madison Frame, Jean Spears, and Ashley Floyd. They're all seniors at the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford. They participated in a nationwide project. It's sending a letter, whether it's written or a video letter, to the next president. I want to thank you all for your time. Thank Thank you you so much. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.